And as you're turning there, I just want to say that it, it truly is an honor to be standing here um, while Pastor Terry is away, right, for the it's a really needed rest for, for him and Rebecca. And I would say by God's grace, this pulpit, since the establishment of Fellowship Bible Church, has been filled by like-minded men who have been having a priority with the Word of God in the building up of His church. And I'm sure many of you see on our signs out front the verse, John 17, 7, that says, Thy word is truth. It's on your uh, information packets, Thy word is truth. But what many of you may not be aware of is that on this pulpit there's a plaque that you can't see unless you're standing here. And this plaque simply says, Preach the word. Right? And that's what these faithful men have been doing. You don't need to turn there, but I thought I would read this first, First Timothy. Paul says to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And as I was thinking about this day, and I was thinking about the message that I, that I might deliver, the word exhort was coming to my mind. And it wasn't that many years ago, uh, I was gathering with the deacons, and Joe Johnson was with us. And on that morning, Joe was exhorting each one of us that when we came to Communion Sunday and we were going to serve communion, that we needed to prepare our hearts, especially to pray. Joe was exhorting us to prepare our hearts before we got here. Our time around the communion table is a weighty time, and I can share with you that there have been many times when I've been serving and my hands are actually shaking, maybe a little bit like right now. It's no small thing to stand before a congregation and lift them up before a holy God. I mean, I know who I am, and I know how far far I fall short of the mark. Praise God, we're all here today not because any of us are worthy. Right? We're here because he's worthy. That's why we're here. So as we walk through this book, this chapter in Nehemiah, there are four primary truths that I hope we will see. And the first truth is we will see a unity with God's people that is based on truth. And secondly, we will see the importance of hearts that have been prepared, both to teach and to hear the word that is preached. And thirdly, we will see the sharpness and effectiveness of God's word. And fourthly, we will see that there is a great joy that comes only from God himself. For many of you, Nehemiah chapter 8 is a very familiar portion of scripture. It's something you've read many times. For others, it may be not as common to you. But I remember the first time I read Nehemiah chapter 8 and realized the weightiness of this and the impact that it had on me. So with that, before we go to the text, let's, let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, it is great joy. It is honoring that you would use jars of clay, Lord, to bring your word, to preach your word. But I pray that you'd open our ears, soften our hearts, that we would understand what you've meant by what you've said. Ultimately, as we heard this morning, may you be glorified in it all. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So before I read the text, it's just a little bit of context that I should share. It's a context that we got into a little bit more in depth in our evening services when we looked at some of the minor prophets. We looked at Haggai, we looked at Zechariah, we looked at Malachi. And we know that at this time in Israel's history, God's patience had ended. Right? The Chaldeans, specifically under the direction of Nebuchadnezzar, were coming to destroy Jerusalem. The northern tribe of Israel had already been carried away by the Assyrians, and God brought judgment to the southern tribe of Judah. King Nebuchadnezzar had several waves of attacks, and he finally left the city of Jerusalem destroyed. The walls were torn down. The temple was leveled. And all but a few remaining peasants were carried off into Babylon, and they remained there for 70 years. Then at God's appointed time, he again began to move the work of his spirit, exactly as the prophet Jeremiah said he would. And I think it's important that we look at just a couple of key verses as we sort of set the stage for Nehemiah chapter 8. So leave your finger there in Nehemiah and turn back to the book of Ezra. It's only a few pages back. I will tell you that in the Hebrew canon, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book. They're not separated like they are in our book. Uh, it is believed that Ezra was the author of both Ezra and Nehemiah, and he very well may have been the author of First and Second Chronicles. And it's interesting how uh, Ezra begins really how Second Chronicles ends, which was a discussion of King Cyrus. So when we look at this first verse in Ezra, it says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fill the word, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. So he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also putting it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. What's interesting here is that Cyrus thinks he's in control. Right? Cyrus thinks he's the one that's doing all this. But verse 1 sort of gives us a peek behind the curtain, if you will. And it says, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus the king. And that's the way it always is, regardless of what any king of this world, any president, any world leader, they think they're in control, but God is sovereign and God is in control of what's happening. Just continue reading on it. Verse 3 says, whoever there is among you, all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold and with goods and cattle together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And here's the next key verse, verse 5. Ezra says that then the heads of father's households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose. Everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. This was going to be a dangerous time. Many of them had never been to Jerusalem. The city was destroyed. There was no gates. There was no walls. There was enemies all around it. A lot of them, you can imagine, didn't want to go. But it was God's plan. It was God's sovereignty. He stirred the hearts of the people to go back to Jerusalem. And the point is to remind us that nothing happens until the Spirit of God moves. 
Cyrus was moved to encourage the Jewish people to return to their land, and the people were stirred to actually return. We were talking about this in Elders' Prayer this morning. And, and if you come to Elders' Prayer and the men are invited, anybody's invited to come, as several of, of us do, you would hear the prayers that are asking for God's Spirit to move and to work among us here in this congregation. Prayers for, prayers for the Spirit to move in the hearts of the Sunday school teachers. Prayers for God to move in the hearts of the children. Prayers for the Spirit of God to move in the hearts of each one of us, even as he would guide our conversations in our fellowship time. Right? And for the Spirit of God to work in our ears and our hearts for each one of us to understand what is being taught. All of us here understand that nothing happens until or unless the Spirit of God moves. So back to Ezra. There were actually three waves of Jewish exiles who returned to Jerusalem. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah were primarily seen as part of the first return to rebuild the temple. Ezra was part of the second return. And Nehemiah was part of the third return as part of God's plan to first rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And that's what Nehemiah, when you think of Nehemiah, that's, that's tend to be where our thoughts go, uh, is the rebuilding of the wall. And one more verse that I think is important for us to see is in Ezra chapter 7. So, so please turn to Ezra chapter 7. And specifically in verse 10. Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. There's an entire message right there in what Ezra was doing. He had set his heart to study the law of God. He was practicing it. He wasn't just learning it. He wasn't just putting it in his own mind. He was practicing it. He was living it out. And beyond that, he was preparing to teach the people. And that's what God was doing for this day in Nehemiah. He had prepared Ezra to stand before the people and to read his law. So turn again back to Nehemiah chapter 8. And we'll read it together. The first part of the book of Nehemiah was primarily dealing with the rebuilding of the wall. And all I want to say there is that they rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem in 52 days. It was a miraculous event. God's hand was sovereign on that. And it was not an easy time to be there. And in 52 days, they rebuilt the wall. So the wall was rebuilt. And now really, God is looking to rebuild his people. That's what we see starting to happen here in Nehemiah chapter 8. So it's 18 verses. Let's, uh, let's read this together. Ezra says, And all the people gathered as one man at the square which is in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. On the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it before the square, which is in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. 
And Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Masaiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashem, Hasbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshalem on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And then they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kilaita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their places. And they read from the book of the law, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Then on the second day, the heads of fathers' households of all the people, the priests and the Levites were gathered to Ezra, the scribe, that they might gain insight into the words of the law. And they found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of every other leafy tree to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And the entire assembly of those who had returned from that captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day. And there was great rejoicing. And he read from the book of the law of God daily, from the first day to the last day. And they celebrated the feast seven days. And on eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. The first thing that stands out is the unity that we see here with God's people. No less than 11 times, Ezra uses the phrase, all the people. 
Look at verse one. And all the people gathered as one man. Verse two at the end, it says all the people. Look at verse five. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Verse six, and all the people answered, amen, amen. Moving on to verse nine. The Levites who taught the people said to all the people. Says it again, for all the people were weeping. Verse 10. So the Levites calmed all the people. Verse 12. And all the people went away. Verse 13. The fathers' households of all the people. It's unmistakable. Verse 17. And the entire assembly. It's another way of saying all the people. There was a unity that was here as a collective unity with all the people. And what's even more important than their unity was what they were unified around. It's almost as repetitious. Now, we've been taught many times here at FEC that unity in our body is vital. Our unity in the church family is so important, right? We are one body, each with different gifts that are meant to serve. 1 Corinthians 12. But we we have also been taught clearly that unity cannot be at the expense of truth. It cannot be. So what they're unified here in chapter 8 is they are unified around the word of God. Right? Verse 1. Ezra the scribe, to bring the book of the law. Verse 2. Ezra the priest brought the law. The end of verse 3. Attentive to the book of the law. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book. Over in verse 8, it says, and they read from the book. Verse 9, at the very end, it says, the words of the law. And in verse 14, it says, and they found written in the law. Verse 15, at the end, they're reading as it is written. And lastly, in verse 18, he read from the book of the law of God daily. These people had a unity that was focused on the word of God. And another part of unity that we see here is there's unity with the leadership. There's unity with the leadership that was here with Ezra. You have elders that are listed by name, right in verse four, and they list another set of elders in verse seven, along with the Levites. It says they moved along Instructing the people. And we will talk, we'll talk more about this in a minute, but we see here is a unity demonstrated by the leadership of the people standing together. You can see it. They're standing together with Ezra. So the leadership is unified, and they're all unified in the word of God. So unity is the first. Secondly, we see the importance of hearts that are prepared both to teach and to hear the word of God. We saw in Ezra chapter 7, right? that his heart had been prepared. His heart was prepared to study, to practice, and to teach the scriptures. God was preparing Ezra for this very day, to stand in front of this massive congregation. You may hear the phrase, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. It's a a biblical truth. There have been many books written on this. God was sovereign over the situation, and Ezra was responsible to do his part in the teaching of God's people. And that's the, way, that's the way it always is. 
God is sovereign and man is responsible to do what he's asked to do. So Ezra's heart has been prepared, but what about the people? We first recognize that the people's hearts were also being prepared because in verse 1 we read, And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law to Moses. They asked Ezra to bring the book. Historians believe that there was anywhere between 30,000 and 50,000 Jewish people that were gathered for this reading of the word. That's a lot of people, 30 to 50,000 people that Ezra's going to read the word. And they're the ones that asked to have the, the word read. Their hearts were being prepared. Their hearts started being prepared when God called them out of Babylon to return to Jerusalem. They were there to hear God himself through the reading of his word. And importantly, in verse 2 and verse 3, describe who the people were that were gathered. Look at verse 2. It says, Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. If they felt the children were old enough to listen with understanding, God was preaching to them because he wanted all the hearts to be changed. God wanted everyone to understand and be instructed in what his will for them was. Ezra had been in Jerusalem for 13 years. He came back with a second return of exiles, and nothing like this had ever happened. Right? No gathering like this had ever happened. But the peoples were essentially demanding to hear the word of God, and it was the people who had asked Ezra to bring the book. This was not something that was being forced upon them. They had been anticipating this because in verse 4, it says, And Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose. This podium was large enough for Ezra to be at the center, surrounded by the elders, standing above the people and facing them. Ezra was in the center, and he stood above all the people. But the implication here is that the word of God is at the center. Ezra was an important servant of God, but the people were not there to see Ezra. The people were there to hear from their God. That's why they were there. That's why the word of God is in the center. Right? And that's not what we see in all Bible-believing churches. The word of God, the preaching of the word is what's most important. There are other important activities that happen during the worship service, but nothing should ever take away from the centrality of the preaching of God's word. That's what we see even here. So we know the people's hearts were prepared because they were the ones asking to hear the scriptures. And secondly, look at the end of verse 3. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. They were attentive. It's a great word. You can picture this, especially those of you who have dogs. If you ever whistle or call a dog's name, the trained ones will snap their head and look at you. Right, we, are, we are taking care of a dog right now. And I'll tell you, when it's mealtime, she's attentive. Her stare is unbreakable. That's what it means. These, the people were focused. They are attentive to the word of God. Because their hearts were prepared. And we see in verse 3, they stood in their place. Look at verse 3. They stood in their place from morning until midday. It's six hours. It's six hours of preaching and teaching and standing outside 
while the word was preached and while the elders and the Levites taught, God had prepared their hearts while he stirred them up to return and they were craving the word of God. Their hearts had been prepared. They were gathered as one. They were attentive and they were ready to hear what God had to say to them. And I need to ask for your consideration. Do we actively prepare our heart before we come to church on Sunday mornings? Each week, Debbie sends a church email that shares the pastor's title for his message and the scripture that he will be teaching from. Reading that ahead of time, considering it, discussing it with your family if you have the opportunity, is a great way to prepare your hearts to hear the message. Praying through the message, praying through a psalm, praying specifically for the pastor and Sunday school teachers are also great ways to prepare your hearts on the Lord's Day, to be ready for the Lord's Day. And I don't want to show hands, but has anyone showed up on a Sunday morning and had forgotten or didn't even realize that it was Communion Sunday? That's what Joe was talking about. He was telling us to come prepared. That is our responsibility to come prepared for worship. I'll be the first to tell you, I haven't always done that, but I do know the difference. I do know that on the days that I do prepare and I have studied the passage, that I am much more attentive to the word that is being preached and allowing it to to affect my heart and to change my thinking. Thirdly, in this passage, we see the sharpness and effectiveness of God's word. I say sharpness and effectiveness because you cannot read through this without hearing the words of Hebrews Hebrews 4.12 in the background. It's a very familiar passage. You don't have to turn there, but let me read it. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God, when properly understood through the working of the Holy Spirit, brings conviction. The word of God is able to judge. And it opens our understanding so that we see ourselves the way God sees us. We see people throughout scripture that when they've been confronted with the word of God, they are crushed. They are broken. And that's exactly what we see happening here in Nehemiah. The word of God has been read by Ezra and explained by the elders and Levites. Verse 7 names another group of elders, mentions the Levites. And then look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, And they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Translating because the people, especially those born in Babylon, probably didn't speak Hebrew. Right? Many probably spoke the native languages. The text says translating to give the sense for what purpose? So that they understood the reading. Those who gathered were those who could listen with understanding, verse 2 and 3. The elders and Levites moved among the people, helping them to understand what was being said. Word of God properly understood so often brings convictions. And again, that's what we see. Look at verse 9, what it says in verse 9. Verse 9 says, Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. The conclusion here is that for the very first time in their lives, they understood all that had happened to them. 
They understood why they had been dragged away to Babylon and why their city and their temple were destroyed. For the first time, they understood why. It's because of God's judgment. They and their fathers had not followed the clear commands of the law, the clear commands of the Hebrew scriptures. They had ignored the law and had taken for granted all of God's promises. And when they understand, when they understood what was happening, they were crushed and they were broken and they were weeping and they were mourning. They were cut to the core. And that should happen to to any of us at any time when we recognize the degree, the offense of our sin before a holy God. We are crushed and we should be rightfully so. There was a proper time and a reaction for the weeping and the mourning that they were doing, but it wasn't then. During this gathering was not the right time for them to be mourning and weeping. God wanted them to be spiritually strong. Look at verse 10. And he said to them, go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And again in verse 11, so the Levites calmed all the people, saying, be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. Here we see that there is a great joy that comes only from God himself. It's a joy that the Lord himself gives. The end of verse 10 says, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The preposition of here is a very important word. It's not saying that joy in the Lord is your strength. Even for us, having a joy in the Lord is perfectly acceptable, especially when we are rejoicing in all that the Lord has done for us. Paul says in Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. Being able to rejoice in the Lord is such a blessing and so encouraging. It's rejoicing about all we know about Jesus. But that's not what this text is saying. Here in our text, it says, do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is the Lord's joy. It's the joy of the Lord. It's for, it, for this remnant of Jews, it's not time for mourning. God has commanded that during these days of the year, they are to be celebrating. It's a feast they're supposed to be celebrating, not mourning, not on this day. There'll be time for mourning. But God had given a commandment to observe this festival And he said in verse 10 again, go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, send portions to him who has nothing prepared. Why? Because this day is holy. This day is set apart by God for the purpose of rejoicing. They were commanded not to weep or mourn. And the joy that would come from the Lord would be dependent on their obedience to that command. It's the same thing, very similar to what Jesus commanded. That's why I asked Pastor Russ to read John chapter 15. But if you want... You can quickly turn back again. I'll read it to you. But in John, in chapter 15, the, John 15, verses 10 and 11 says this. We heard it this morning. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be that my joy may be in you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. The greatest joy Jesus had was doing the will of his father, keeping his father's commandments, 
Jesus is telling us that we will receive from him our greatest joy when we keep his commandments. And in this context, what does it say? Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Keep my commandments and my joy will be in you. It's a joy that can only come from the Lord himself. You can turn there if you want. You don't have to, but but just to, to sort of emphasize this point, Hebrews chapter 12 is an important verse when we're trying to understand what the joy of the Lord is. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. The cross is the ultimate act of obedience. Enduring the cross on our behalf because this is what his father's will was. He was obedient to his father because he knew his father would carry him through the cross and he would eventually sit down at the father's right hand. That was the joy that was set before him. Sharing that joy with us can only come from the Lord. That's what's being said here in Nehemiah. So if we look back, Nehemiah was studying and was starting to bring this to close. He again, we have a picture of joy that is result of obedience to the commands of God. That's what we will see here. Starting in verse 13. Verse 13 says, On the second day, of, on the, second day the heads of fathers' households of all the peoples, the priests and the Levites, would gather to Ezra the scribe, that they might gain insight into the words of the law. When I read this, what we see here, this is men's study. Right? I'll read it again. Then on the second day, the heads of fathers' households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight into the words of the law. This is the men gathered around Ezra for a study into God's word. And here again, it wasn't a study just so that they have more knowledge. Right? Because what happened? Verse 14, and they found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booze during the feast of the seventh month. And I'll stop right there, that word found. The word of God had never been lost. The word of God wasn't something that was lost and they had to go find it. What it means is it had been ignored. They were ignoring. That's why they weren't living. That's why God brought judgment on them. The word of God wasn't lost, but it had been ignored. So they read this. They realized this Feast of Booths had to happen. It was God's command. It had to be done a certain way. Verse 15, so they proclaimed and they circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem saying, go out to the hills and bring all the branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches and branches of other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So they sent the proclamation, verse 16, so the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof. And in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square of the water gate, and in the square of the gate of Ephraim. Right? This had to be a tremendous sight. Just try to picture Jerusalem, the, the brown cities that are all around them, and these tents and booths that they were living in, made of these leafy trees. It had to be a sight. It was meant to be for remembrance. God was telling his people, do this every year. To remember how I cared for you in the desert, how I cared for you for 40 years. You had nothing. You had no permanent home on your own, but I provided. 
It was there for remembrance. But as you continue reading, it says, In the assembly of those who had returned from activity, made booze and lived in them, the sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun. They hadn't done this since the days of Joshua. They hadn't done this since they first came out of the desert. They'd had sacrifices. They were willing to have the festival, but they didn't build the booze. That visual wasn't there. It's like having communion today with no bread. It wasn't there. It wasn't the way God described it. But they did it. They saw it was written that way. They wanted to be obedient to God's command. They were obedient to God's command. And what does it say at the end of verse 17? And there was great rejoicing. It was great rejoicing because they were obedient. And that's where it came from. It was a joy of the Lord. They weren't to mourn. Time for mourning was coming. It was proper. But here, obedience showed that they were going to have a joy. And they were going to do it because they were going to do this festival exactly as God had commanded it. It says, he read from the book of the law of God daily, verse 18, from the first day to the last day. And they celebrated the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. There is indeed a promise of great joy and spiritual strength from our Lord when we obey his commands. And it's exactly what we have here today as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's table. It's a visual picture of God's provision for every sinner who would believe. Observing this is a command from the Lord himself to be followed and to be followed exactly as he described it. A command to be followed in remembrance of the price our Lord paid on the cross. You hear the elders say, that participation in this ordinance is open to everyone, but it's only for those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ. And that is true. But their earnest desire is always for everyone here to understand and to believe the gospel. That includes some of you children. It certainly includes the youth. Remember, Ezra read to all who could hear with understanding So as we look to remember the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, it'd be a good question to ask is, can you explain why Jesus had to die? If somebody asked you, can you explain why Jesus had to die? See, God placed man in the garden. He placed Adam in the garden. And he instructed Adam to take care and to and to work the garden. But he gave Adam a commandment. And that commandment was to not eat of the fruit of the tree that was in the middle of the garden. He gave that commandment. And God said to Adam, if you keep my commandment, you will live. But if you don't keep my commandment, you will die. And Adam didn't keep the commandment. He ate of the forbidden fruit. And when Adam ate the fruit, the entire creation fell. Sin entered in. Sin entered into the heart of men. And from the seed of men, from generation to generation, that sin has been passed down. That's why every one of us, every one of us that's here is born in sin. 
We sin because we're sinners. Well, let me ask you this question. When Adam ate of the fruit and the, and the penalty was death, why didn't Adam instantly die when he ate that fruit? When he broke the commandment of God and Adam ate that fruit, why didn't he instantly die? It's because of grace. It's because of God's grace. God had grace on Adam. And it's because of his grace that he sent his son. He sent his son to be born of a virgin. We've just studied that. We know it matters. He had to be born of a virgin. He couldn't, be, he couldn't have an earthly father. Because if he had an earthly father, he'd be a sinner just like all of us. It would be a sin nature. But he didn't have an earthly father. He was born of a virgin. And because he was 100% man and 100% God, he could never sin. He never did sin. He stayed clean his entire life. And therefore, he fulfilled the law that you and I cannot fulfill. He fulfilled the law. What did God do? God took our sin and placed it on Christ, put him on the cross, and poured out his wrath on him. God put out his wrath on Christ, the wrath that we deserve. And at the right time, Jesus had his final words to his father. He had three words. Jesus said, it is finished. The wrath of God had been completely satisfied. That wrath that was due us was completely satisfied on all who would believe. But it ended there, right? Three days later, Jesus rose from the grave. Three days later, he rose. And at that point, God takes his righteousness and places it on us. Why do we need the righteousness of Christ? The penalty had been paid. Why do we need his righteousness? Because we don't have any of our own. There's no one righteous. No, not one. And only the righteous will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only the righteous will enter the kingdom of heaven. We needed Christ's righteousness. We gave him our filthy rags. He gave us his righteousness. And he ascended into heaven. And this very moment, he is seated at the right hand of his father, interceding on our behalf. And that's the gospel. That's the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. So the only thing we can ask is, do you believe it? Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe that salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, according to the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone? That's the gospel. If you believe it, will you repent of your sins? And if you do, please join us as we celebrate the Lord's table. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are your words. You've given us your word. We can understand what you mean by what you've said. You've opened our eyes. Lord, we pray that your spirit is even working here this day amongst us. Lord, give us 
understanding where we need to understand. Give us conviction where we need to be convicted. Not, not for our sakes, Lord, for your glory. Do this for your glory. I pray that we'd be honored in our communion service, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.